0: This is episode number 326 with Malcolm Ong of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating
1: fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now,
0: the Founder Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder fam? Hope you and your family are healthy and safe. Uh, it's a crazy time right now, and uh, unfortunately, we're still in lockdown in Melbourne, Australia, but we're getting there, and uh, yeah, look, we're working as hard as we can, right, making it work to produce a ton of awesome content and interviews for you due to the power of the internet. So let's talk about today's guest. His name's Malcolm Ong. And he's one of the co-founders of a company called Skillshare. Now he launched Skillshare in 2010, and uh, he led the business through a very significant pivot from being a completely offline, in-person model to one that's now an online educational company that is purely membership-based. Now, after you know moving on from Skillshare, Malcolm moved to South China Morning Post which is a global English news media company owned by Alibaba. And he was tasked to transform the company from a local newspaper into a global media empire. And he took that from 4 million monthly uniques to over 50 million. Um, So he's a very, very smart product guy. And I've personally learned a lot from Malcolm uh, as we try and grow Founder to become a leading online entrepreneurial educational platform, um, I've spent a bit of time speaking with Malcolm, learning from him, learning from his experiences. So I wanted to ask him to come on and share with you guys just everything around his journey. He's had an incredible journey, extremely successful founder, like a very, very smart guy, the way he thinks about product and the way he thinks about growth. And uh, we also talk about the online education space and uh yeah look the future of it and where he believes it's going and um you know advice on when you need to pivot your business and i know that's a commonly used term but uh yeah this is a great interview and i hope you get a ton from it just like i did so guys if you are enjoying these episodes please do take the time to leave us a review it really would be incredibly helpful all right, that's it from me. Now I jump the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? Yeah,
1: um, maybe if I can start from the beginning. You know, I yeah. kind of uh, uh, starting from the beginning. Ever since I was young, I've always been interested in tech and passionate about tech. And one of my very first companies was actually an e-commerce company that I started in high school. And um, that was kind of my first foray into starting a business, learning how to run a business, learning how to code. Um, And it was just a very good opportunity to not only work on something I was passionate about, but also learn uh, along the way. And then from there, I went on to, you know, go to school uh, and college at Carnegie Mellon, where I learned both business and computer science. And I actually ran that e-commerce company throughout uh, school while I was uh, doing school. and then upon graduation, you know, I went on to uh, work at IBM doing tech consulting. And throughout my entire career, I've worked at big companies like IBM and Microsoft and Razorfish, um, all the way down to smaller companies, you know, like OMG Pop, um, uh, including starting my own company, um, Skillshare in the education space. Um, and fast forwards to today, I'm currently at South China Morning Post, um, a news media company based in Hong Kong, that's a got acquired by Alibaba about four years ago. And right here, right now at the company, I'm leading all the product engineering, design, um, and kind of also their, you know, transformation and digital transformation into a more modern company and into, uh, um, focus on going from focus on being focused on Hong Kong to a global expansion.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So, um, when, when did you start your first company, like, sorry, your second company after the e-commerce one, what was your second one? after second was that, one was after, Skillshare. Oh, second one was Skillshare. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, how did that come about? Cause Skillshare, you know, it's, it's one of the top online educational platforms. Um, I know it started as in person, but yeah. yeah, like, like, tell us about that story. And you seem, uh, were you always based in New York?
1: No, um, I was born in Jakarta, Indonesia, moved oh. to, um, LA in Orange County when I was really young. Yeah. And then, you know, went to school in, in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. Um, when I graduated, I moved to Austin, Texas, yep. uh, uh, spent a couple of years there. Then I moved to New York and I spent about seven years in New York. Um, after New York, I moved to San Francisco and then I came to Hong Kong.
0: Ah, got yeah, you. I've been all over. Yeah. Wow. So how did you meet, uh, Michael.
1: Yeah, he and I met uh, kind of through a mutual friend slash coworker that I had in New York. And yeah. at the time, he he and I connected a little bit on, on Twitter. Yep. And that was probably around mid-2010 or so when we first connected. And he and I you know, kind of hit it off really, really well. And we both learned that, hey, we're interested in the same things. We're interested in both starting a company. Um, and around that time I was working at OMG pop, it's a yep. small, um, gaming startup. Yep. Uh, you might know it as, you know, we were best known as, uh, um, for the game, draw something and that company oh. eventually got, yeah, and that company oh, eventually acquired by Zynga. Yep. Um, so I was working at OMG pop, um, Mike was working, you know, kind of at another startup uh, as well. And he and I just kind of brainstormed some ideas of what we wanted to do. And when we were thinking about Skillshare, I think number one, we knew that we wanted to start something that was very mission driven, uh, number one. And so we looked into education, we looked into healthcare um, and various other ideas. But I think also at the time, healthcare in particular was a little bit difficult uh, um, with all the regulations in the US. And it was just a little bit early, I felt. Whereas something like education really, really hit um, an emotional nerve for us in a way. Um, you know, number one in the U S in particular, education is very, very much a linear path. Right. And, and, um, certainly, you know, both he and I did go to college, but we also knew lots of people that went to college, even though it wasn't necessarily right for them or a fit for them, but they did it just because that was the thing to do. And, you know, if you didn't go to college, you were seen as quote unquote, a failure. And so in the U.S., it's it's sort of that linear path where you go from high school to college, uh, from, you know, college maybe to grad school. And that was what was expected of you. Um, but especially for, you know, folks that are in the creative fields, for example, if you're a designer, if you're an artist, musician, this is not necessarily um, the path that it may be right for you. And then on top of that, when we were doing more and more research about what was happening in education, we learned... Uh, a crazy statistic that basically there's more in student loan debt in the U.S. than there is credit card debt, right? Yeah, I think uh, the current yeah. stats are like a trillion dollars in credit card debt, but 1.5 trillion in student loan debt, uh, which is which is insane to think about. And so that was really the impetus of why we felt so strongly about Skillshare and like doing something within education, and then the whole idea of of well, if I wanted to learn something, why do I need to go to a college? Why do I need to go to a four-year institution? Why can't I simply just learn from the people that are already working in that job or the people that are already working in the field um, that, I'm, that I'm interested in? And so that's that's what kind of kick-started the idea
0: around around Skillshare. Interesting. So um, what did the first version of the product look like?
1: Yeah. Uh, it, Uh, When we first started, it was 100% offline. Um, Every single class happened in person in your local community. We started first in New York and then eventually started to expand to other cities. And in the beginning, we just wanted to be able to prove, right, because it's an offline, two-sided marketplace, you have teachers on one side, students on the other. And we wanted to be able to prove that, number one, are people willing to teach? Because the whole idea was democratizing education allowing people to teach, but all allowing people to learn from teachers that are in their community, right? Mm. And you have to remember, remember, this was back in 2010, when online education was very, very new. um, And the whole idea of learning online was very, very new, right? So number one, we had to uh, prove that people were willing to teach, especially people who have never really taught before, or people that necessarily weren't quote, unquote, teachers. And in the beginning, we when we approached a lot of Um, folks and and wanted them to teach they're like their first response was always but i'm not a teacher i'm a designer or you know i'm a coder i'm I'm an engineer but we had to convince them like that's fine in fact that's why we want you because you're working in this field and it's exactly why people are interested in learning from you and hearing from you and you'd actually be surprised even though maybe you've never taught a class before you know teaching i think just comes naturally to a lot of people right Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the one side and then the other side is just Proving that people were willing to pay for this type of experience, this type of content, and this type of course. Like, if you had an opportunity to learn, say, design from uh, a designer at Facebook, would you want to do that? You know, versus going through, you know, a, a city college or or a university to do that. So, in the very beginning, we just wanted to curate ten classes a month for the first three months. See if we could do that. See if people were interested, um, and and see if there was there was demand for that. And we were actually very successful in doing that. We were able to get almost a, a 100% of our teachers have never taught before. We got um, 30 classes in our first three months. And the classes pretty much sold out, right, in terms of tickets. Um, and so that was enough uh, to convince us, like, hey, we're on something here. There's something here. Let's, let's maybe, like, quit our jobs, our full-time jobs, and start this full-time.
0: Ah, I see. So, So your, your idea of offline was your kind of strategic version of kind of like a minimum viable, low, low risk, easy test way to, to to test your hypothesis around the problem you were trying to solve.
1: Yeah, kind of. But I think the whole idea of offline was actually part of the original idea anyways, right? Online, online was actually maybe um, part of our future plans, but we, we, we did want to make sure that the experience of learning was still there because we also knew that if we just put content online, we didn't necessarily, um, want it to be a very solitary learning experience. Right. When you put something online, like a video online, um, especially again, back in 2010, when the quality wasn't really that good and technology wasn't, you know, sort of there yet and super HD like video, um, because of that, you know, that might be equivalent to you reading a book, right? And so it's a very solitary learning experience. Whereas what we wanted to create was something that was around community and something that was very project-based. Um, and so we wanted to be able to prove that out within the the, the classroom environment or in-person environment, I should say, um, even though it was not always in the classroom, right? Sometimes it's in your office, sometimes it's outside in a park, wherever it is. But we wanted to create that community where, hey, I'm getting together with people within my community and learning together.
0: Mm, interesting. So how did you get your first, you know, you said you filled out those classes. How did you fill them out? Because um, oftentimes when people have an idea for a product or a service or a startup, um, it's always interesting to hear how did you get that? How did you do that? How, like Because that's not often done.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it's a lot of things that, you know, don't scale very well. It's a lot of hustle. Um, So a lot of the teachers in the beginning that we knew were just from our network, people that we knew in the industry in the tech industry. So, you know, we taught all sorts of different classes, and we experimented with what classes might be interesting, what might work. Um, So things range from, you know, coding classes, to design classes, all the way to some of the more quirky, quirky ones. So, you know, how to how to how to play StarCraft um, was one of our first classes or um, poker, you know, how, how to play poker, things like that. And then we even approached some of the more, um, you know, entrepreneurs in within the city, maybe their chefs or their restaurant owners. And we basically said, hey, are you interested in teaching classes? So we would get a Michelin rated chef to teach how to make cho- chocolate truffles and things like that. Um, so that that was it. It was just us you know going to door to door, reaching out to our network and our, and then, and then maybe you know two degrees away from that, and just trying to convince people to to teach, and then from there, you know any way that we can get people to to be interested in in the classes. so initially, we actually ran a Kickstarter campaign um, that oh. was around um, our mission. Yep. so our mission of of you know, being able to at least change or improve the current situation in education in the U S and so we started a Kickstarter campaign to spread kind of the, the message that education was broken. Education requires some fixing. Um, and, and the message that, you know, there's, there's so much more in, in student loan debt than credit card debt. Um, and that Kickstarter campaign was to fund this animated video that we created and we sort of spread. And as part of that campaign. That was also our way of leading up to the Skillshare launch and getting people to sign on board. It's like, okay, if you're interested, if, if, if our mission resonates with you and if our mission aligns with you, sign up here, give us your email and we'll let you know when we launch. So by the time we were already curating these 30 classes, we already had an email list of thousands of people that were at, at least interested, right? And then out of those, you know, X number of people within New York that, that could actually attend some of our first classes. So that was our way of, of um, leading up to, uh, if you will, the the cold start of a two-sided marketplace, right? Yeah. So it wasn't from day one that we only had maybe three classes. We actually had kind of the full catalog of 30, and then we had a database, an email database of thousands of people that already were familiar with what we wanted to do with, with our brand a little bit um, and, and wanted to, to see like, okay, what classes do you guys have uh, coming up?
0: Got you. So um, it would have been pretty early days Kickstarter as well when you probably used the platform. So yeah, um, yeah, and they're basically they, yeah. I don't know if they still are New York based, but they were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. they are. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, um, I'm curious when you guys uh, chose classes. Um, how did you know what topics and uh, why did you choose a varied range versus um, I think over time, the platform is is mainly more design community focused, but you said you were doing poker, you said you're doing, you know, StarCraft. And I, I hope there was a, a Korean a Korean teaching that, that one because those, those guys are incredible at StarCraft. But yeah, yeah like, uh, yeah, I'm curious around that with the platform play.
1: Yeah, I think part of it was based on our vision and strategy, right? Of wanting to do classes that number one, work really, really well, uh, particularly for in-person, right? So things like poker works really well, um, or cooking classes work really well. Um, Number two, things that are very um, um, more hands-on and more project-based and things that that maybe are more about creating something perhaps, right? So those are your design classes. So those are your, you know, how do I do, um, how do I create a logo and things like that? and so that was kind of the, 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 the areas that we played in not knowing specifically then maybe which direction we wanted to go within that, but we also knew things that we did not want to do and that we, that we, we considered off brand. So for example, we did not want to be a language learning course, yes, with, yes. Uh, and company, we did not want to be, um, a, a company that simply took say college, uh, content uh, university level content and put them online. So we didn't teach math. We didn't teach, you know, physics courses, things like that. So we kind of knew already the things we um, uh, were off brand for us, but then things that we, we wanted. Certainly within the things that we wanted, there are certain things that are a little bit more PR worthy, a little bit more um, buzz worthy, um, but also things that really uh, was just people within our community, the creatives within our community that you wanted to maybe learn from and that maybe previously you didn't have a little bit of access to, or previously there was no, um, transparency into like, for example, the, the Michelin rated chef, it's like mm. how, how to cook like, or cook within the kitchen of a Michelin rated chef. In fact, I took that class and, uh, one of the classes that, that the Michelin rated chef did, and it's actually in the restaurant, in the kitchen of the, you know, of the restaurant, which was uh, an incredible wow. experience. Um so there's there's those types of classes and then over time though you know we learned about what are the things that people are actually interested in what really works with our community and we gravitated towards this creator community right and so within the creator community that's where you have all these design classes coding classes um and, and what have you so we started then partnering with companies like Adobe partnering with companies like Mailchimp doing marketing Um, so, so that's what, where we, we ended up gravitating towards.
0: Yeah, I see. And, uh, uh, so the plan was always to go online. Um, how did that switch happen? And, uh, do you, yeah, like, cause I think there's a much different experience online versus offline. It could be argued that in person there's a much more magical transformation that takes place. Like what, what is your take there?
1: Yeah. The plan was always to incorporate online but we didn't know that we would pivot completely online right so the plan was to try to figure out can we use online to scale but in the beginning we were really focused on the offline model and so after new york we spread to other cities like boston you know dc san francisco la um, and we eventually reached maybe about 15 20 cities and and oh, wow. each of these cities were you know its own micro um, two sided marketplace right and and its own community. And so we had community ambassadors, we had community managers within the team, um, and we had basically like, yeah, the ambassadors um, within each city, like locally, would be running these classes or helping teachers run these classes. Um, But I think because of that, uh, we definitely started to hit some scalability issues. Um, Just being able to run these classes if they're in person, although, like you said, the, the, the format was great, because it's in person, it's it's very interactive. You're 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 seeing people like in, in you know in person and live, which is great. But it means that it's restricted to location, so venue. So number one, we had to find venues, right? And then number two, it was restricted to time because a certain time, like let's say I'm doing a course uh, you know, in um the north part of New York or whatever, um, and it's at this date, this specific time. Even if a user in New York City was interested in that, but they couldn't make that specific time or they couldn't travel or commute 30 minutes to get there, you know, that was a huge barrier. Mm -hmm. And so we started to see those type of scalability issues. And there was a certain point where we sort of had to make a decision. All right. In order for us to really scale and in order for us to to really scale this globally. Right. Right because we had we had obviously big ambitions for for the vision of the company, we really have to maybe rethink um, how we're doing it. but again, moving online and 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 trying trying to introduce online components we wanted to do it very carefully because we did not want to just put simply put videos uh, online and 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 call it uh, uh, you know make it the end of the day. so when we started introducing those, we wanted to make sure that Number one, everything was definitely project based. Number two, everything centered around community, right? So being able to, to not only work with and communicate with the teacher, but also um, students helping other students. Um, and so that's what we start to experiment with. Okay, can we start introducing the online component with this? Can we take some of the best offline classes that we did, put them online and see, see how that works out um, and see how that scales.
0: And what happened?
1: Um, I mean, certainly it, it, the online was the one that uh, succeeded more and, and grew a lot faster uh, naturally, right? Just because, of again, the physical limitations of the offline, right? So offline, we probably had anywhere from 30 to 50 students at most per class um, in terms of capacity. And then the online classes would easily hit the hundreds Um, you know, instantly. And then especially when we changed the the online a little bit to being a scheduled class to an evergreen class where there's no start or end time, Mm -hmm. then that basically took off like crazy. And so by then it was a very easy decision in terms of, all right, if we truly want to scale this company globally, then it looks like we're going to have to pivot the business away from offline and into online. Um, But again, we wanted, that was not an easy decision to make because it, it it sort of went against you know the first idea of us wanting to create an, ex- an offline experience because of us wanting to get f- people to feel like hey this is a very hands-on interactive project-based um community supported you know experience and and learning experience um and we weren't fully sure if we could if we could um recreate that online
0: mm, i see and i suppose one part about it as well is probably uh the business model would have would have stacked up a unit economics-wise much more sufficiently online, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we first started, it was a la carte uh, model, right? Yep. You bought tickets to classes one by one. Classes might be $30, $40, $50, right? Um, when we moved online, number one, it made that a little bit more efficient in terms of customer acquisition because now a teacher from New York can teach to anyone, right? Not just limited to their geo. So it helped us in terms of being able to um, improve and make uh, acquisition for from the teacher supply side more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, it also helped us really hone in on um, quality for the, for the classes, right? Whereas before we had to have people pretty much in every city and work with all these teachers and sort of repeat that process every single time we launched into a new city um, whereas it made it much more efficient online. Um, and then, you know, as, as, you say, so as things scaled, then, uh, the unit economics, um, uh, just made more sense, uh, for online. And then we eventually moved to a subscription model, which is what the model we use today. Um, simply because, you know, when, when you're online and you don't maybe have that, that, um, physical kind of like attachment to like, okay, I'm going to this physical thing. Um, the, the the always on mode, I think it lent itself a little bit better to a subscription membership model, um, and it and it tied itself back to one of our original values of this is this is a community of teachers and learners. This is not you're just downloading content online.
0: Mm, so it's almost like a membership in many ways. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I actually wrote that down: subscription versus à la carte, uh, as you was describing it. Um, did you make, wh- when did you guys raise VC?
1: Um, we raised our first round pretty much, uh, at launch. So within three months of us oh. kind of starting it. So we started, um, middle of 2010 and we launched the first version, I would say November of 2010 and we had closed, uh, the first round like that January, February.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, okay. And you yeah, guys pretty up- early on you guys series D series D or yeah. Think, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so it's been journey and, uh, subscription versus a la carte. Was that very early on, uh, when you moved online, uh, or was it later on or like, and, and why, like, like, I know you said it, 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 it reaches them, uh, it, it aligns with your values. Um, yeah. but I'm curious, uh, yeah, because a lot, a lot of uh, all basically all platforms, online education platforms are subscription.
1: Are they are they all is is Udemy uh, yeah. like, is still U- all right?
0: Yes, correct. Ude- Udemy is, but they do B2B. Yeah, yeah. B2B,
1: yeah the yeah. B2B side of things. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with Creative Live, I think. I think Creative Live now, even they uh, have subscription or they're pushing or they're moving towards that model now too. So a lot, yeah. basically majority, masterclass. Usually that's that seems to be the path, right? Launch, yeah, yeah. a la carte, build up catalog, big enough catalog, turn on recurring.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially as today, right? I think more and more people are used to paying for subscriptions online. Mm. Um, you know, maybe it was the Netflix and Spotify's of the world that kind of set that path uh, for mm-hmm. people. But, you know, we, we talked about, for example, the media industry and the news industry, um, tons and tons of news companies are also moving towards subscription. Whereas before that wasn't certainly not the case. And people were actually hesitant to see if people were willing to pay for uh, subscription for news. Right. Um, but yeah, I think for, for Skillshare, it just sort of made, made sense because of the way that people interacted or experienced the class because then it wasn't a, a physical, like, I'm physically going to something. And so, um, um, that was number one, but I think just two. number two was from a business model perspective as well, where we noticed that, um, there was just a lot of barriers, right. When, when, when it's a la carte, because not only do you have to kind of find the class and then, When you find something that's interesting, you have to kind of make a decision of like, okay, do I want to spend $30 to $50 on this one class? Is it going to be worth it? Things like that. So it was partly a a business decision where we noticed that um, based on the number of classes people were purchasing a la carte every year, um, they would actually get, you know, maybe number one, a lot more access, obviously, to, to Unlimited when they move to um subscription but then for us too in terms of the the LTV um for each user would actually increase when we move to subscription as well right uh,
0: so you saw you saw LTV significantly increase yeah for sure uh so yeah I suppose yeah there's that predictability sustainability so yeah you, you can predictably higher. you don't start at zero um right
1: um, yeah that predictability is also key right it's a it's it's definitely valuable it's being able to get the the um cash flow you know every single month that's that's very uh, stable cash flow
0: yeah yeah no no i okay that makes sense so um you've now uh, kind of moved on are you you you're still on the board school i'm school? not on the
1: board just advising but i'm not on the board
0: okay yeah. um So you've decided to move on. Are you able to share kind of like what happened or like why you decided to move on? Is that okay? Yeah, I mean,
1: it's kind of part of the part of the pivot. You know, um, when the company made a decision to pivot, that was when I decided, like, you know, I want to maybe take a step back. Um, it wasn't originally, you know, my uh, idea of starting, the the original idea of starting Skillshare, like right? very, very different than the original idea. Mm-hmm. And I particularly had a passion for that two-sided, offline to online um, um, mechanism, if you will. Um, it's, it's part of the reason why, you know, I was interested in e-commerce in the very beginning, and it's also part of the reason why, I eventually went to go to Lyft, you know, which is also kind of this offline, online two-sided marketplace. Um, so although it was uh, our move from uh, offline to online and from a la carte to subscription was for sure by far the right decision for the business. Yes. Just more from a personal standpoint, you know, I think it wasn't necessarily aligned with my original idea of of, of what I wanted it to do.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um and yeah, look, two-sided marketplaces are very difficult to build. Yeah, yeah. Uh, incredible once they get going, though, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Once once you get it going, then you know you have enough liquidity. You have enough uh, kind of like the the network effects of of the marketplace. It's mm. it's very then hard to compete against, right?
0: Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, look, I don't have that personal experience, but speaking to other founders. Um, yeah, they are incredible. It's an incredible model. So you moved on to, uh, lift you were like VP of growth, right.
1: At, at Lyft. Yeah. No, I was a product manager working on, uh, several different teams. One of them was a growth team.
0: Yep. Got you. Okay. And then, um, now you have moved, you're in Hong Kong. Is everything yep. okay over there for you? Like,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, with, yeah, the protest that was happening and now with with the COVID situation, I mean, things are are, are okay, relatively speaking. It's it's relatively fine. Um, in terms of COVID, we, we just got hit by a third wave. But um, considering how many people live here, right, I think we have like seven, eight million, uh, probably even more than that, um, that live here. Um, we've only had maybe a few hundred cases. And, you know, I say only, like, obviously, it's a bad thing. But Um, but relatively speaking, I think it's a relatively low number compared to the number of uh, population that we have. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things going on in Hong Kong, but in a way, I'm, I'm actually, it's interesting to be here to sort of see and be in the front lines of it. And that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to come here in the first place is to learn more about What's happening in Asia? Learn more about you know tech in Asia, tech in China. What's happening there? And so, being in Hong Kong has been a very interesting opportunity to see, uh, you know, especially working in news. Right? It's like being in the the, the front seat of the U.S.-China trade war, the front seat of uh, the Hong Kong protests, and what's happening between China and, and Hong Kong. Um, so, so all of that, and then even with COVID, you know, first coming out of China and then spreading across Asia before going globally. It's just being being able to, to kind of have a front seat to, to see that unfold. It's been very, very interesting.
0: Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. So it, it's, it's crazy what's happening right now in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so well, I'm glad you're doing okay. Um, so before we move to kind of everything you're doing in the media sca- landscape, um, I'd love to just kind of round out the online education piece because, because of COVID, uh, you know, um, typically this industry has seen a big boom. Yeah. right um yeah and uh not just for online educational platforms but for the creators too and i'm seeing a big 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 movement more than ever where individual creators are now using platforms like teachable uh you know teachable is recently acquired um but yeah platforms like teachable where uh you know uh you know, individual creators are being empowered to go out there and teach, uh, or they're using platforms like a Skillshare to share yeah. their expertise and knowledge as well. Um, what is your take there? Uh, like, because I think this is a very hot space right now. Do you think it will continue or to grow? Like, I think it's been very accelerated because of COVID now.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's always been on this path. And yes. because of COVID, it's accelerated, right? So that timeline has shortened, and so yes, I can, I definitely think it'll continue post COVID um, for this to to continue to grow. Um, more and more people now are more willing to learn online, right? And more willing, even even you think about K through 12, which traditionally you know you never would have thought that 100% uh, uh, learning online for K through 12, but that's definitely happening today too. And so it's just an interesting time for us that people are, number one, are willing to try it. And when they try it, they say, oh, you know, maybe this, 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 this can work. Maybe this, this is a, uh, you know, it wasn't so bad um, as, as maybe we thought it was. Um, But then you couple that also just because of technology is better today, right? Compared to 10 years ago when, when Skillshare first launched or even before that, right? Um, online video, uh, 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 is, is good now, right. Compared to 10 years ago, the internet's a lot faster. Everyone has, you know, amazing phones, uh, uh, everywhere. And then just also maybe the hardware that people use to be able to, to record these and, and produce these. And so the barrier to entry is just also a lot lower to creating content online. And then I think just the ability for people to, to take control over their own careers and be micro entrepreneurs themselves. Um, it, within this, you know, creator community, if you will, and this creator generation of everyone sort of building their own brand and, and, and putting it out there. Right. So you have tons of folks, especially like on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, um, creating their own careers and brands and the name from themselves. Um, so I think that, that then of course bleeds into content creations, bleeds into areas like education and what have you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, been really interesting to see uh and awesome for for like us i found it to be a part of and to really continue to kind of try uh, to democratize entrepreneur education so yeah. um i'm curious as well like your take like one thing i have noticed is um this trend around individual creators much more concerned with the amount of money they make or from just selling a a course uh, versus student success or quality of course, or maybe they shouldn't be teaching Like, What is your take there? Like, do you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. What What is your take there? Cause it'd be interesting to hear your, yeah, just everything with your background.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's always going to be the case in terms of you're always going to have a, a range and breadth of quality that's out there, right? Not everyone's going to create amazing content and, and, and be the best teacher per, per se, um, but also the flip side. And that's part of the reason why Skillshare, we pay a lot of attention to the learning experience and, and the community aspect of that. Because again, just us producing a video, slapping it online, and then you know not even interacting with, say, the student and, and getting feedback, that's not what we really intend to do. Um, so for us, certainly the learning experience matters a lot. Um, but yeah, you're always going to get folks to be creating content, putting it up on YouTube, and then just using it as a, as just, you know, selling content effectively. So, so I don't know. I mean, I think eventually maybe some of those will, will eventually weed out. Um, but also there's going to be opportunities for new companies to come in and maybe really focus on the, the pedagogy side of, of the learning experience, right. And maybe changing the way people think about, um, learning in general. And especially I think as, more and more universities start changing that more and more K 12 start changing that. And so maybe we'll eventually see this hybrid of, uh, online and offline again, right. Where you sort of try to marry the two together. Um, that might be really, really interesting I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, there's something, there is something very special about offline around just that versus online around that transformation and just that in-person experience that, yeah, it's really interesting. So, um, You've moved now into the media space, and uh, yeah. you're working, yeah, at uh, South China media. Um, tell me more about that around like were you approached or you were actively like because you do like advisory, angels, like you do angel stuff too, right? Like uh,
1: advisory, uh, I haven't done any angel investment yet. i okay. I usually um you know invest my time as an advisor, but yep. yeah, that's definitely something i'm I'm looking to do next.
0: Yeah, got you. So. Were, you, were that were you approached like how like it's it's kind of an interesting uh yeah career uh, decision to move over yeah, yeah to outside the world in Australia, like you know, Southeast Asia yeah
1: yeah yeah um, yeah I started at SCMP back in August 2017 so it's yep. about yep. almost uh, three years ago and at the time I was at Lyft in San Francisco doing product and growth um, and I was approached by Gary Liu who's the current CEO of SCMP. And he and I are old uh, acquaintances from the New York tech scene. And then he um, was visiting me in San Francisco, and we were kind of catching up. And he was telling me about how, hey, I'm thinking about moving to Hong Kong for this news media company that got acquired by Alibaba, you know, in 2016. Um, and he was telling me the story, and it it sort of put a, a you know an idea and seeded in my head a little bit, a little bit of inception. But it, it, it's it's been interesting because Asia has always been in the back of my mind. Being born in Jakarta, Indonesia, um, seeing the growth of you know countries like China and India and Indonesia, kind of being that next uh, on that next stage, mm-hmm. um, I, I realized sitting in San Francisco that even though I'm in the heart of Silicon Valley, the heart of tech, there's just so much um, other opportunities elsewhere that I didn't know much about. Right, I had. I had no idea what was going on in in, in China, no idea what's going on in in Indonesia and other parts of Asia when it came to to tech. And so just being able to have an opportunity to to try Asia and try to experience living in Asia um, was was part of my, um, one of my goals anyways. So I think that was number one. But I I think number two as well is just because SCMP is in the news media industry, that industry is also going through a lot of change and almost forced disruption right? Because of, of, of its business model, uh, the business models of news media companies, um, um, being forced to change. And, and I like being in those intersections and those, those times when industries are just going through a lot of like change. And so me being at SCMP also gives me that opportunity to not only be a part of that, um, recreation, um, but also help in that recreation and help in that transformation. So I think for those two reasons, um, it was really compelling. Even though I was super happy with what's you know my experience at Lyft and like Lyft was a growing company and I was you know I, w- I was happy there I was stable there, but this window of being able to work at S and P was just a, a rare window and I just kind of had to take it. And so part of my role of of, of you know coming over here was not only to help build the product engineering design teams, which, which by the way, didn't really exist before I, I started, right? It, it, it before was, in, was, you know, it's a 115-year-old it's a newspaper of record of Hong Kong, very traditional type company. Um, but um, part of the reason why both, you know, Gary, the CEO, and myself and a few others came on board is to help transform the company into a more, you know, for lack of better terms, Silicon Valley style uh, company, in other words, being more data driven, investing more in tech, investing more in in product, being more user centric, um, and investing more in our people uh, towards that, um, and so it's helping in that digital transformation, but it's also helping create a brand that expands outside of Hong Kong to become global, and so and and we've done that right. So so it's it's been about three years now since that transition, and so we went from being a Hong Kong focused paper with about. Four million users, four million monthly actives (MAUs). Um, yep. To today, we have over fifty million uh, MAUs. So we've we've twelve x you know that in, in the last uh, three years or so. And then now, Hong Kong represents about eight percent of our audience. Wow. where The U.S. represents thirty-five percent of our audience, which is the largest market for us. Um, so it goes to sh- you know that that whole shift into Hong Kong into something global. That was part of the, the reason why we came on board.
0: Yeah. Wow. This is really impressive. So you guys like, yeah, you're really building out a large scale global media entity now. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much your local publication, traditional model. You guys still do print? We do still do print.
1: Yeah. But definitely digital and online is is our focus. Print is just because we're still the newspaper of record here in Hong Kong. Yep. Um, And I think fortunately that, that business, um, although it hasn't really been growing that much, it also hasn't really been shrinking as much as, uh, print has in other parts of the world. Yes. And so we're, we're lucky that, um, we still have a loyal following here in Hong Kong for that, but yeah, for sure, you know, online and, and digital is, is where our, the, the majority of where we are today, um, and the majority of our growth, um, and over 90%, right. Of, of our users now are outside of uh, Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, uh. It's been an interesting journey
0: yeah i find it interesting as well that shift in nuance where you just say you know 50 million monthly active users versus readers or you yeah. need like it's it's like yeah yeah so tell me like what did you what what did you do to really shake things up there around like getting that kind of growth for like anyone would find this interesting to build a, a site um and its content like did you amp up content production like what like what what was it then to now like, like like what happened like was it did you build like hardcore seo teams like like what what does it look like i'm curious
1: it's pretty much all the above you know i think when we when we first started um early 2017 it was number one repositioning right redefining who we are so we set new mission, new vision, uh, redefine exactly our goals. So it's kind of like almost like a startup. It's, it's you know, some of the things that we did to transform ourselves is exactly what I I, I did at Skillshare. It's exactly what I would do when I start a new company. Mm-hmm. It's like figuring out and redefining, okay, what exactly are we trying to accomplish? Yeah. And so our mission is to lead the global conversation about China, right? Because we really believe that China as a story is one of the biggest stories in our lifetimes, and China as a, as a story and as a country is affecting people's lives all over, all over the world, and we want to be able to, to, to um, tell that story. Um, I think part of the reason why Alibaba uh, acquired the company is because they also felt that they want um, more and more people around the globe to know more about China. But of course, they know that no one's really going to listen to media coming out of China because it's, it's obviously censored. But then they also felt that media coming from the Western world, for example, the New York Times, might also have a certain Western bias. And so us being in Hong Kong, we have the liberty of you know having one foot in the Western world and one foot in the Chinese world and sort of telling that, that story um, through truth and fairness. Um, and so step one was redefining our mission, redefining what we're trying to do. Step two was the cultural transformation. So it's getting people um, within our company to change their their way of thinking um, from again just being you know we're a newspaper in Hong Kong to hey we're actually going after this this global uh, uh, ambition and and we really want to um, change the way we operate. We want to be more data driven. We want to pay attention to product. We want to you know um, be more user centric and get and talk to our users more. All, all that all that jazz. So it, it was really the, 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 the transformation of internal culture and internal process, right? So redefining company values, it's like everything that you would basically do uh, when you first start a startup or first start a company, we, we just so happened that we had existing employees, but we redefined all of that. Um, and I think fortunate for us, a lot of the folks within our company were very open to that and open to change, and um, they had an open mind um, going into it. I was actually pleasantly surprised how well and how quickly we were able to shift um, and how well and quickly we were able to transform ourselves internally um, because you would almost assume that any large company is so um, you know, steeped in its, its old ways of doing things mm-hmm. that they would be hard to change. But I think we were just lucky that people recognize that the news media industry is in trouble. And unless we change, then you know, we, we, we we could not have succeeded if we did not, if we were not open-minded to that change. So step two was, was that cultural internal process and, 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 um, transformation within our culture. And then step three was focusing on then the products, right? It's effectively going from a being quote unquote, just a content publisher into a product and platform focused company, right? So it's, Like, yes, it's, it's recognizing that, yes, we are journalists, you know, obviously like the core of our business is creating content, but then thinking about how is that content packaged? How is that content distributed and delivered? So, you know, back in the days of print, like if you write an article, that article is going to show up exactly the same way, the same format, um, on the print, everyone's going to read the same exact medium. But today, obviously that's not true. When you write an article. Well, number one, it's, it's in real time. I don't have to wait, you know, uh, till midnight for the print to actually be published. So everything goes out in, in real time. But number two, users and readers are consuming it in their own contexts with their own devices and mediums. So someone's, you know, reading it off their phone while on the train. Someone else is maybe like prefers audio and prefers like the listening experience. Someone else might actually prefer watching a video. And sometimes those videos are, long form YouTube style videos. Other times it's short form Instagram stories, right? So it's shifting then the way we actually create content from this like one article format to suddenly like, okay, if I wanna tell a story, I have all these tools in front of me of how to tell that story, then how do I actually tell that story using all those different tools, right? So how would you tell the story of the Hong Kong protest via a podcast? And that's very different than if you are to tell that story through 15 second vertical video, you know, clips. So it's basically changing the way then we completely, uh, uh, look at how we create content into then thinking about the product, which is how it's packaged. And then therefore how it's delivered. Um, and by the way, with, when, when I talk about delivery, it's also, um, how people are consuming it because not everyone is coming to SMP.com all the time anymore, right? Not everyone is downloading our app, um, anymore lots of people are getting the news just from Twitter or just from Facebook or just from Google News and Apple News. So we also have to embrace that. And we have to learn then um, how to create content, how to create products for those specific um, experiences as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So um, can you tell me around kind of size of team Uh, three years ago when you came into kind of transformation, like how many Like, what kind of scale are we talking?
1: Yeah. When I first joined, um, the team that was formed around me was around 20 people or so, the majority of those being engineers. Today, we have around 65, uh, tripled in size. And overall, the company is at about, um, excluding a JV that we have with Hearst, in in our magazine's business, we have about 700 employees in total. Um, And the majority of those, 300 of those are editorial.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. So, um, what's exciting for you at the moment in the next kind of couple of years that you're focused on?
1: I mean, I think it's just continuing, um, our path, um, of transformation, right? We're, we're, we're not done yet. And it's, um, uh, it's only been three years in, uh, I think this is definitely at least a 10 year journey in a sense, but it's continuing that that transformation and continuing to figure out how do we adapt or continue to adapt to changing user behavior and reader behavior, right? Um, whether it's newer mediums such as TikTok, right? TikTok didn't wasn't really a thing three years ago. Um, to podcasts, you know, suddenly becoming popular again. Um, to just just other ways of of storytelling. So that's that's you know number one in terms of changing user behavior. Number two, it's from a business perspective, it's changing our business models, right? So historically, and even till today, we're still very much um, advertising revenue um, dependent, but as you know, advertising uh, revenues have gone down considerably over the years Um, and other lines of business haven't really uh, worked either. For example, like classifieds business, right? The entire classifieds business In the U.S., for example, classifieds was a huge thing for companies like New York Times. But when companies like Craigslist or whatnot came came on board, then that basically took away that business from them. So we have to think about revenue diversification. So what are the ways beyond just advertising? Can we make money? So certainly subscription and membership might be one of those. Um, E-commerce is another, right? Um, Wirecutter, for example, the New York Times uh, startup that New York Times acquired uh is an interesting, you know, kind of model around around doing product reviews and, and doing affiliate commerce. Even like white labeled or branded commerce, right? You have companies like Complex doing uh, YouTube video series, hot ones. I don't know if you've seen those.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
1: effectively then selling their hot sauce, right? Selling the hot sauce that's in these videos. So it's like the marriage of content and commerce, right? It's like um what other ways we can kind of take that? um, to video. So, you know, New York times and box doing, uh, these shows on Netflix, right? So that's also uh, a relatively new, new ish model, uh, for us to do. So there's all of these basically like different revenue channels, events. Uh, we have an in-house agency effectively that does, you know, content marketing for clients. Uh,
0: oh.
1: yeah. And we, yeah, we that's huge, quite common. Yeah. Like we have a huge like events team. We have a syndication team. Um, you know, not uh, not too dissimilar from like the the Getty's of the world, right? Doing like basically like syndicating photos and videos to to clients and things like that. So we have tons and tons of different revenue channels that we're experimenting with right now. So I think that's kind of the second part of us transforming ourselves and reinventing ourselves into figuring out what does the new business model look like, right? Where advertising is just going from maybe. 80 to 90% of our revenue mix into down to like 20% of revenue mix. So I think for those two things, those are the, the, the things that are going to be in our near future that we're going to have to focus on and figure out and continuously work on. Um, and then, of course, it's just continuing with our growth, continuing with our global expansion, um, reaching more and more people that may be interested in you know the story around China, and, and it's learning ab- about how to reach those people and how to create products and, and and how to distribute content to those people.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really cool and exciting, man, because, um, you know, we're kind of working that out as long as, as we go along the way as well, because, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, and it's been brewing for a long time. Like in Australia, uh, quite a few big uh, magazine publications have gone into administration and uh, yeah, it will continue to happen. Any any media or publishing company that is fully reliant on advertising, it's just not a good business model, from my yeah. experience. Um, yeah. Even the work required to obtain those, uh, you know, advertising or sponsorship agreements, it's just a long lead cycle, man.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, look, I will work towards wrapping up. But um, just wanted to just ask you one last question. Uh, This has been an incredible interview, just like any kind of uh, parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share or any kind of things that you kind of live by as a founder, because you have a breadth of experience um, that, yeah, is, is really kind of rare. And it's just, yeah, really cool to hear your story.
1: Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in terms of parting words, I think if I were to tie everything together based on my experience, maybe one word to kind of summarize all that is adaptability in a way. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, I've, I've been involved with different types of companies through different industries, um, been in different cities, right. And experience what running a company and growing companies like in New York and San Francisco, um, to Austin to now Hong Kong. Um, so you know, when I work with a lot of founders and and entrepreneurs, and and helping them, it's, it's thinking about how to adapt. Um, particularly, like you know, for example, with what we're going through with with COVID, right? No one no one expected the world to be hit with that, and so people have have been forced to to adapt quickly and react quickly. Um, and the businesses that couldn't, they're going to suffer, right? And so I think that, that that's the one thing that maybe I've learned a lot in um, my experience and in, in living through. Um, living in many cities and going through many different companies is learning how to adapt in those situations. Um, uh, so I think adaptability is, is maybe the one thing that people don't really focus a lot on and in trying to hone in as, as a skill and being able to, to to learn. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, very, very valuable and certainly helped me a lot in my career. So
0: mm-hmm. one follow-up, sorry, any advice on how to foster or like, yeah, on, on adaptability, like skilling up on that. How can you do that?
1: I think it's based on just experience. So being open to trying new things, right. Being open to wearing many hats and just having, uh, perhaps the, the, I mean, maybe I naturally am curious, but just having that curiosity of, of learning. Um, so whether it's, you know, if you're a marketing guy and you want to learn how to code, then you should definitely do that if you're a coder, but, you know, just because you're a coder doesn't mean you shouldn't care about the business, doesn't mean you shouldn't care about revenues. And so when you're working with those folks in the other departments, you know, spend a little bit more time and effort to, to learn about what they're doing, learn about what some of their priorities are or what they care about, right? Especially if you're in a situation where you've maybe never started a company before, but you want to someday, It's it, that's you're going to have to learn more than just your current skills, right? You're going to have to learn um, how to do many things. And so being able to, to um, be curious and and to want to learn those other aspects um, and then vice versa. Like if you're a, a startup founder and you're starting a company right now, like, yes, maybe you're a two-person team and you're basically doing you know everything already. But what you're doing today in a two-person team is going to be very different than when you're a 20-person team versus a 200-person team. So actually one of the reasons why I went to a company like Lyft Is because I didn't necessarily have that experience of like um, at a company that was you know 500 1,000 employees that had you know already been Series D Series E and that was like growing like wildly, Um, and so I wanted to 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 see what it was like the inner workings of of a company at that at that size, and so I think that has sort of helped make me who I am today. Where you know if I want to be able to help. Any founder, any entrepreneur, um, I think I'm, I'm able to at least be confident enough to, to learn quickly about their business or learn quickly about their situation or even draw from, you know, the, the, the various experiences that I've had to be able to help them in, in, in that capacity. So I think that's, that's the way I would approach it. It's just like have a curious mind, constantly learn um, um, what other people are maybe like learning on, on their job um, and learning about what they're doing. Um, and just, just having that mindset, like if you were the CEO of a company, would you know enough to earn the respect of that other person? Who's an expert at X, Y, Z, right? And if you don't yet have that, then what can you learn to, 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 to gain that?
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, no, thank you so much, man. Well, look, this is a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for your time. Extremely yeah, valuable. You're welcome. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview